Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Pain Talk podcast. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week, talking to Pam McLean-Vesey, who is a pharmacist working with the Drug Evaluation Clinic in Halifax. So this week, we're going to talk about a very common healthcare condition that we see, which is acute mechanical back pain. And in fact, 80% of human beings at some point in their life will experience acute back pain. It's extremely common. There are different factors that contribute to that. We're not going to get into that today, but I think I will do at some point a podcast on acute back pain in terms of the different causes and maybe provide some resources and tools that people can use to manage this very common condition. So one of the questions I came up in this podcast that I just want to correct for Pam before we get into that, and I asked her a question about how long people could be using acetaminophen uh, for acute pain. And at the time, she didn't have it at her fingertips, but she did share with me afterwards. So I'm going to read what she said. So she basically had a quick look at the product monograph, which is uh, coming from the Drug Enforcement Agency. And most warnings were really directed towards patients who had very high risks for liver complications, like people with alcohol use disorder, or if they had Tylenol or acetaminophen that was added into multiple products. And we'll see that a lot, that acetaminophen, because it is relatively safe, it actually gets added in to other therapies such as muscle relaxants, which we'll also talk about in this podcast. But um, if patients are taking too much of it, it can be stressful for the liver because acetaminophen does need the liver to metabolize. So she uh, gave me a a printout of the monograph and what she basically said is that acetaminophen should not be used for self-medication of pain for longer than 10 days in adults or five days in children unless directed by a physician. Since pain of such intensity and duration may indicate a pathological condition requiring medical evaluation. So that makes sense. And we do talk about the fact that it's important if patients are not recovering or improving, they need to be reevaluated to make sure that we've got the right diagnosis. It also says in the monograph that acetaminophen should not be used for self medication of sore throats for longer than two days in adults and children, and for the treatment of headache, limited use to less than 15 days per month to prevent medication overuse headache. So a lot of patients may not realize that acetaminophen, as well as the NSAIDs, when they're used frequently, can contribute to ongoing headaches. So without further ado, we're going to jump into the podcast, but I just wanted to provide that context before we get into that uh, so that uh, we have some clarification. So why don't we go to a very common case, actually, myself working in the eMERGE yesterday. We had at least three of these, actually. It's such a common presentation to the emergency room. (laughs) It is really common. So I think it's always good to have kind of a good handle on this. And what we're talking about here is back pain. So uh, non, uh, I say non red flag. (laughs) So dividing back pain into two major groups. One are patients, what we call red flag situations, where obviously these treatments would not be specific. We need to get definitive treatment for patients who have, you know, life-threatening complications that would present with back pain. So we're not going to talk about that group. We're talking about the group who have what we call mechanical back pain. And I'll give you the the case and then I'll leave it right up to you, uh, uh, Pam, to kind of work through this. But this is a 56-year-old male who comes in with acute mechanical back pain. He's got no red flags. This occurred at work. 
He's requesting a specific uh, opiate analgesic uh, called uh, Percocet, which is a combination of oxycodone and acetaminophen. Uh, he's had that five years ago, and it worked really well for him. And he just needs to get through this because he's got tons to do. He's got to get through his uh, day of work. He can't miss any time. He would also take treatment for CBD as he's taking his neighbors anyway. So let's look at uh, just a general approach to acute uh, low back pain. Well, you've already mentioned that you rule out all the red flags and and um, look to see what the, the best uh, treatment approach would be. One of the things that was important to me when I read through the literature and what I'm seeing coming out in the latest guidelines is about the communication piece mm. um, and telling patients that they will improve over time regardless of treatment and that reassurance that all of the, although it's hurting like heck, uh, you're li there's likely no um, serious underlying disease if you've gone through and excluded all of those things and red flags. And this really, really helps a patient not worry that there is something more serious going on. And of course, uh, advice, and there's all sorts of things on the uh, internet for self-management uh, of low back pain and exercise and things like that. I'm so glad that this came out, Pam. It's so important. And in fact, in my approach uh, to, to all pain is the most important piece that I start with is the communication. And if we look at one, because not only are we trying to make the pain more tolerable so the patient can move, is that we want to mitigate the risk of the patient developing chronic pain, which is a very complex complication that can happen. And one of the biggest triggers is often uh, fear or uncertainty. So fear by far of worst case scenario thinking, what's it, seven times the the normal risk for the development of chronic pain. So the antidote to that is really how we promote safety for patients in our communication, that this is how our body uh, is designed. It's designed to protect things. It tells us when things are wrong. Our job is to help you get moving so that you feel safe in that movement. And so pharmacotherapy can be a tool, but there are also other tools that need to come in. It's never just one thing. But I, I think this is so important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and just further to some of the other things we've said, the guidelines are also, also suggesting that non-pharmacological treatments are actually considered the first-line therapy, yeah. not not pharma, pharmacotherapy. Yeah. Um, so just a, a little brief, like you said, we didn't really go into the non-pharmacological evidence too deeply. It's not our specialty to critique that type of evidence, but we did report what other people were reporting as evidence-based. So superficial heat, massage, acupuncture, spinal manipulation have some evidence to support that they may be helpful in the short-term um, treatment of acute pain. And of course, staying active and not laying in bed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I can remember in my training, Pam, this is how old I am. This is crazy where I used to, part of our job as early medical people in training is we used to put people in traction on bed rest. So they'd be in hospital for weeks at a time on their back and we'd put them in traction. We'd change different weights and things like that. That's how we treated acute back pain. And when I think about the, you know, what we, we actually did to patients, it's so crazy because we've done like a 360 in terms of how we manage back pain. The other piece that I'm just going to add in there as well, talking about the non-pharmacologicals, uh, it's really about the pain-protective behaviors. And we did mention that earlier on in the previous case, but often, especially with back pain, patients will get into these pain tucks where they're coming forward. And what that does, it, it basically changes our center of gravity, but it actually increases the work 
of our tissue. So how we can help patients get upright. And I love seeing these commercials now for these upright walkers, even though I wouldn't recommend an upright walker to everybody came in with back pain. In fact, most people hate the concept of a cane or a walker, but they'll be okay when they think about walking sticks, right? It's sort of a more reflects sort of a physical activity, but just trying to help the patient to get upright, sort of bringing those shoulders back as best they can. And this is where, uh, you know, all these different therapies can help get them there. So the more they stay in these tucks, the more stress there is for their back and their joints and things like that. So uh, it is just a little pearl, I think, that's so important that we don't talk about enough. And patients often respond to it very nicely when we do have that conversation. They all recognize it in themselves, just like we recognize it in ourselves. Right. So, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. those are good points. Yeah. 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 And so, like, I mean, we've always uh, we've already mentioned that the what are the goals of treatment and, and it, they all apply to acute low back pain, too. We, we do need to decrease the pain intensity, hmm. but that's to so they can increase their activity and improve the function. So so those are the goals to to get the person up and moving and, and for this person back to um, work. The only thing is with pharmacotherapy is that in all the literature that we reviewed, and there's some, been some big systematic reviews and, and new guidelines published very recently. So the latest evidence would show that there's really no large effect for any pharmacotherapy for acute or subacute low back pain. Um, so that's why it's really important to realize what, what to tell the patient they should expect from these medications. Don't expect that this is going to take all of your pain away because it just hasn't been shown that they do that. Yeah. But if we can decrease it enough, you know, and they suggest 30% change from baseline is really what your a clinic, clinically me meaningful improvement is, um, then, then that's our goal. And hopefully, you know, they do work well enough to do that. Yeah. And I think the, the importance of that number uh, first of all, it sort of tells us that we're not trying to take it away completely, which is what you just mentioned. But the other thing that I think is important, too, is that if we push pharmacotherapy too much, especially in, in medication-naive patients, is often one of the complications, and there are tons of them, is that we can actually promote sedation. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about the muscle relaxants. But mm -hmm. um, I've seen situations where patients are maxing the more sedating medications, and they're just not moving, and their pain is escalating. So minimizing sedation, otherwise at, at nighttime, it's obviously not so, so bad. And that's why we tend to focus more on some of these sedating medicines at night. But the more sedated patients get, the, the less functional they get, the worse their pain will get. And that, that's just really how the brain is hardwired and the nervous system is hardwired. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why it's important to see that 30% for sure. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of the medications that are generally prescribed and have shown evidence to improve either the pain intensity or the muscle or the um, function, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and skeletal muscle relaxants are considered uh, to have small benefits. And in some of the guidelines, they are currently the kind of the first line pharmacotherapy recommendations. But you always have to consider the potential for the adverse effects. Interestingly, acetaminophen, the latest clinical trials, have not really demonstrated a great benefit. But as I mentioned, part of our work is to critically appraise some of these trials. Yeah. And so when we looked at the acetaminophen, there were some questions left. Uh, and, and we can go into that a little bit more detail in a bit. Um, interestingly, opioids, either alone or in combination, which are so 
often used when you think about the acetaminophen and codeine combinations or Percocet, their routine use is not recommended. Uh, and of course, if used, we go for the lowest effective dose of immediate release preparations and for very short durations of less than three days. Um, so they are a last resort, basically, if you can't take an NSAID or a skeletal muscle relaxant or acetaminophen yeah. potentially as well. And I think I think the other thing uh, that we have to think about when we're making a decision clinically to use an opiate analgesic is that we have to think about the risk to that patient and often one of the biggest risk factors. And when I think about risk factors, I think about or harm related to medications. I think about not only, I mean, we often go, especially around these uh, opioids, we think about substance use disorder, but there the risk around falls, the risk around uh, cognitive uh, issues, all those kinds of things can be huge. But one of the most important things that I always try to look at is that some of these opioids are incredibly euphoric. And when I think about oxycodone in particular, uh, and patients will tell you this, is that they just feel, for some people, the way it affects their brain is that it just takes them into a different zone and they just feel like they can take on anything in the world. And so these brains that are more vulnerable to euphoric opioids are usually people under the age of 40. So I tend not to use those uh, in those younger age groups. I'd be interesting to start looking at some of the literature around that, but I tend to use, if I'm making a decision around an opiate analgesic, to use something like a morphine-based and uh, stay away from the euphoric ones, which are the uh, oxycodone uh, hydromorphone. So I'm sure I'll get some interesting comments on that. Uh, but more importantly, how the length of time that we leave patients on these. So, and I always see opioids as an adjunct. I don't see them as the primary therapy. Uh, so using, even though it's disappointing to see some of the literature around acetaminophen, it is a very common one that I use because of the safety profile. So I will use that on a regular basis and then consider uh, the opioid as an adjunct. And it, I don't use it very often in these patients, very, very mm -hmm. infrequent. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of acetaminophen, it, it, it's interesting because all of the guidelines that are suggesting don't use acetaminophen in acute low back pain, base it on this one clinical trial for the most part. It's it's uh, forcing the, the evidence for sure. And it didn't see a difference uh, in median time to recovery. Uh, but some of the critical appraisal things that are kind of in my realm are that, you know, this study began 10 days since the onset of pain. Uh -huh. And, you know, some of the outcomes would suggest that I don't know if it was a really good study that really assessed the value of acetaminophen because 70% of the patients were satisfied, didn't matter what treatment they were in, yeah. and nobody missed any days of work. So, you know, was this a group of patients that were already on the road to recovery? It's hard right. to say. It was a well-designed trial. No, no, you know, not any uh, critique of that for sure. But yeah, it's interesting uh, that it was 10 yeah. days. Yeah. So mm. it, it just, it's sort of weird. Um, the other thing that I find, and I'm not sure if you've come across this in the evidence, is that for some patients, it matters if the acetaminophen is short-acting versus long-acting. And for many patients, especially when I find that they're coming in and really struggling uh, with how they're experiencing the pain, is that they often do a little bit better with the short-acting because they don't they don't feel the long-acting uh, working, even though it's, you know, generally when we look at the dosing, it's probably pretty consistent, although, you know, obviously half-life is going to be a little bit different. So, um, and I'm not sure if the evidence uh, helps us either way. I don't know if it's been studied, but I do find in some, this is coming back to the individual specific person, 
is that sometimes the short acting can be uh, more effective uh, for some people that feel very anxious. They feel like they just need to be using something. And I don't know if that's, <laughs> if there's much evidence for that, but I, I don't know if you've ever come across that, Pam. Not in the acute low back pain evidence, I didn't. Uh, however, we also looked, and it won't be included in the academic detailing, but we did look at migraine therapy. And I believe in that some of the, mm -hmm. sh uh, sh like ibuprofen has a shorter half-life than naproxen, say. Yeah. And I think that initial higher level might have shown benefit okay. uh, over some of the others. Now, if you're taking something chronically, obviously you're going to re reach steady state. So, but in the acute situation, if you, yeah, you're, you're going to probably have that little boost at the beginning with a shorter half-life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so the clinical practice guidelines around acetaminophen, do you want to share that with us? Yeah. So basically it's a mixed uh, bag on that one because if you, if the guideline looked at the, the PACE trial is the one that I was referring to previously, then they no longer recommend acetaminophen for acute low back pain. Other guidelines have suggested that because of the stronger safety profile compared to the other agents, even looking at NSAIDs or uh, opioids, then they leave it in there as an option. And, and they do this based on a consensus recommendation, just on practical considerations for lower risk compared to other things. And, and so even in some up-to-date uh, guidelines, they're still putting it in. Yeah. And there yeah. are patients that do benefit. It, there's no mm -hmm. question. It was kind of interesting just coming back to the opioid as well in, in Dr. Bussi's work is how, now they just looked at, I think, three opiate analgesics, didn't they? They looked at tramadol. Yes, um, fentanyl patches. Yes, which was kind of interesting, actually, to look at, you know, those particular, but in terms of looking at the harms as well, uh, they just kind of lit up red in the charts mm -hmm. that he was showing us. So it's important just to, and it, it's not that we shouldn't be, I mean, tramadol is not an opiate analgesic that I would promote for sure, because there are some challenges uh, Around its use, it's obviously not a, it would be a pro-drug, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. But it, uh, in terms of the complications that you see, it's just, it's quite impressive in clinical practice for sure. So I think the simpler we can make the opioid choice, so avoiding those dual actives, you know, avoiding the euphoric in, in certain high-risk populations, uh, and then limiting the uh, length of time uh, and not using it as a primary therapy to see it as an adjunct. It's just a tool in the, that little toolbox. But the longer mm -hmm. we leave them on it, the nature of the medication or the drug is that they will develop tolerance and they will develop dependency. It's not the patient's fault. It's the way the drug is designed. Um, and uh, so it creates problems the longer we keep patients on these medications. What about topical yeah. NSAIDs for acute low back pain? Any benefit? Right. Well, unfortunately, we don't really have a lot of evidence to support the use, in, particularly in acute low back pain. Um, the only evidence that we had was from a Cochrane review, uh, and that suggested that there is benefit in acute musculoskeletal pain Two of the studies did include acute low back pain patients, but this is out of 61 studies. Mm. So we really can't apply this evidence wholeheartedly to yeah. acute low back pain, but definitely some of the preparations did have low numbers needed to treat, um, and it was in moderate to high quality evidence. So um, I know there are preparations out there that specifically are labeled for low back, you know, for back pain. So 
Um, anyway, it, it, it potentially is an alternative, but it would be considered not highly supported by very specific evidence for acute low back pain. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So now we're going to get into that last section, which I think is going to be an important section, is talking about the skeletal muscle relaxants. Uh, right. And these are very common, used out. So why don't you take us through the evidence there, uh, Pam? Right. Um, and so in terms of pain relief, skeletal muscle relaxants were, were quite similar to NSAIDs, really. And so in their work, they used a scoring system where 20 points was a clinically relevant difference. And so they just barely made that uh, point. It's at like minus 21.3. And that was from a meta-analysis of five studies in only 500 patients. So that's that's not a lot. But I think the more important thing is that there was no benefit in function shown, and there are adverse effects that were increased uh, in the systematic review. And, and this really shows in the CNS side effects, primarily mm-hmm. sedation. So it doubles the risk of, of sedation, basically. Um, and again, it's very depending on the study that you look at. Some of them in acute situations don't show that much of a difference, but I think that in my experience, I find that some people can take these and it's like nothing to them. Yeah. If I take one of these, I'm asleep for 24 hours. So yeah. I, I think it could be a trial and error thing. Exactly. Everybody's, this is talking about the individual specific nature of how we manage yeah. things, right? So it, it is useful to ask patients, have you ever been on these medicines and how did they affect you? And um, I tend to, so I'm actually going to just move on to the the next slide there and get you to talk about cyclobenzaprine. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an, probably one of the most common that's out there being used. Yeah. So we found a little bit of evidence. We, uh, um, Edie, who works with us, uh, is a physician, and she said, well, I found this evidence that suggests that five milligrams is as good as 10 milligrams. And just like the standard dose that most people use is a 10 milligrams three times a day. Exactly. So there is this evidence to suggest that five milligrams works just as well with about a 10% re- absolute risk reduction in somnolence rates. So um, yeah. so we think that, and the, and the monograph itself says you can start with a five milligram yeah. dose as well. So this, this actually changed my practice. So now I use five. And, and actually a lot of clinicians actually, where, where I see uh, patients being prescribed uh, the 10 milligrams four times a day. So you can imagine if we're talking three times a day here, it's actually prescribed mm-hmm. much more frequently uh, clinically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this changed my practice. And, you know, I see this, this is basically an atypical uh, tricyclic. And uh, I use it mostly at night. I don't use it through the daytime. And uh, so I think it's, you know, it is it is a tool that we can use in the toolbox, I guess. And uh, But every patient is going to be different, whether or not it's something that they want to try. But some people are often very desperate to try something, right? They just want relief. (laughs) Yes. And I think we have to be very um, cognizant of the adverse effects, especially in the elderly. And and there was some evidence to suggest that using muscle relaxants in the elderly increases the risk for hospitalization or an urgent care visit. Uh, so we, and there are beers criteria that recommend against the use. So just have to be very careful. As you mentioned, the side effects that are similar to the tricyclics mm-hmm. and additive with other CNS depressants. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. Uh, I think that's such a great, but literally this, this changed my practice. So I was really grateful to hear you guys uh, go through that. So we did it. We went through yes. them all. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to add, Pam, at all? Or 
share with with listeners uh, that you might have missed in the conversation? We were just using um, our choosing wisely presentation, so we'd stay on track. But <laughs> yeah, well, uh, well, basically, I think as this started out, it it was an initiative that was meant to help uh, physicians or prescribers choose something other than opioids for acute pain because a lot of the times we know the first introduction to an opioid i I statistically i saw that it is for acute low back pain yeah um and so these are the situations where we think it's acute but it may be the first entry for some people and like you say if you've got that young athlete you know consider alternatives because there is no indication that opioids are superior in terms of efficacy and they are likely well there is evidence that they are higher in terms of adverse effects uh, not only from a tolerance perspective but from gi and from sedation and all of those other things so i think if there are alternatives to opioids for acute pain then we should definitely be using them more but on the other hand, we wanted to make sure that the alternatives weren't just, you know, offering up similar adverse effects that everyone needs to consider as well. So that's why we spent a lot of time looking at NSAID uh, risks, and there's a whole section on that. And, and uh, yeah, so it's just, it's just really important to consider all of the factors of the drugs, all of the factors of the patients, and uh, go yeah. from there. The other, the other piece that I would add to that too, Pam, is that we teach patients the habits and behaviors to manage their clinical condition, right? So they're, or to manage their suffering or manage their pain. So if we're promoting, and you hear this a lot, if, well, if my physician says that it's okay for me to use this uh, whenever I have my back pain, then that's what I'm going to use. So we teach patients the habits and behaviors to manage their their pain as well as their suffering. So I, I think we can't underestimate the power that we have at that moment. So helping patients find other strategies because the body is designed to to uh, not only protect that tissue, but also that to heal that tissue as time goes on. So if that person is not recovering the way we should, we first of all need to make sure there's nothing that we're missing, obviously. So that's where the re-examination of our, our patient and also making sure that there's no other no other condition that's that's creating uh, the the challenge around their pain management, but then start looking at different interventions earlier rather than wait for five, six months down the road when we still have them on these very high-risk pharmacotherapy and the patient's still not improving. And now we've got pain amplification or pain sensitization. So more and more, we're starting to see the literature tell us that we should start really looking at this around one to two weeks if the recovery, if the patient's pain is starting to escalate rather than start to get better. So what do we need to be doing differently and, and how do we need to help the patient feel that uh, that they are getting some recovery and that there's nothing new that's going on. So I'll just add that little piece as well. Mm-hmm. Very important. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yes, so we'll sign off now. And uh, But thank you so much, Pam. Appreciate it so much. Yes, thanks. You too. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.